Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in the negotiation to sell your company. Today, we dive into part two of our chat with Mark Ferrier, the entrepreneur behind the marketing agency Traffic Group, which he grew to over $2 million in EBITDA before selling it in an eight-figure exit to the private equity firm Onyx. Now, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to part one where Mark recounted his rocky experience with a shotgun agreement in his first marketing agency, which led him to being ousted by the firm and a $2 million lawsuit. Now, I'll make it easy by sharing the link to episode one in the show notes page, which you can find over at builttosell.com. Today, we'll explore how he learned from that ordeal and became the majority shareholder in Traffic Group. Now, we pick up with Mark describing how he structured his agreements with his minority partners in the early days of Traffic Group. Without further ado, let's jump into part two with Mark Ferrier. Enjoy. Well said. So let's get into traffic because, uh, you know, in the last sort of story, we we talked a little bit about the very early days, a couple of partners. I've got Ryan and Ellie. Are those, were those the partners you were referencing in the very beginning or yep. do they come yep. later? Okay. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, once again, two really, really great guys. Um, you know, I, I still have relationships with them in certain levels at all today. Both them... Interestingly, total role reversal, right? It was, they were the minor sweat equity partners and I was the majority partner. And we were trying to build a structure that was a better structure than I had experienced for them to go grow. Uh, both had great different skill sets. Ryan was a very brilliant creative director, amazing designer. And uh, uh, Eli at the time, unbelievably good operations, get it done person. And in a startup world where you're people driven, I just realized that I needed people that were stronger around me than those two things. Those two bought into a vision. And, you know, we built a really successful company together for about five years. And the business created a niche in sort of the marketing services space where we, yeah, yeah. Well, and the name traffic was, was very deliberate because we believed that most at the time advertising or creative wasn't driven to sales. And there was only one real company out there that uh, a guy named Tony Chapman, whoever you guys know, I don't know if you mm-hmm. know Tony very well. Um, yeah, we used to. Tony's been a, yeah, yeah. Tony's been a mentor of mine for years, and Tony had a company called Capital C, and and their sort of thing was you know big ideas that work. That was Tony's tagline, and it was we sort of took a little piece of that and had this idea that we'd come up with sort of creative ideas that sold. In other words, we'd actually transact or drive traffic into a store or a website, whatever it was. And so we were a very conversion-driven creative agency. And, and at the time, that was a bit of a unique positioning. And we got people to believe into it and buy it. And, and so the business really rolled for a great period of time. We were on college streets. So that gave us a bit of a uniqueness. And, you know, I would say if you look at it in chapters of the business, the startup phase, unbelievably successful, great clients, great partners. We did some amazingly cool work. We did some really interesting things in a young driven service business that I, I think we thought differently. And, and I bring some of those things to these new businesses I work in right now. You know, one of the things that I can't even remember what partner of mine came up with it was this concept that we created basically a, you know, holy crap fund. We, we called it another adjective, but it was basically this fund where we realized we had all these young people working for us. Um, who were working super hard hours. And so we created this fund that was basically up to $10,000. And if you got into any situation in life where you needed cash, you could basically ask us for the money, no questions asked. And we had no expectation that you'd repay it. And, and so, you know, incredible. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was great. And I would say to you, it got utilized for crazy things, right? Someone had to put a cat down one time. Somebody got kicked out of the house and needed first and last rent. Someone's mom had brain cancer and needed to fly out the night before and be paid. And, and, and so it really built this culture based on all my past learnings of you got to put the people first. And so we built this great company. I'm super proud of it. And then at about year five, um, Eli came to me and said, hey, look, I'm not sure this is my lifelong dream. And... In, in a really great way, it's probably, you know, one of the best ways to put the people first. 
He said, I want to go travel the world for a year with my wife. And I'm not sure this is my lifelong dream. And so we figured out a way for Eli to exit the business. And basically, we fully funded and supported him to travel the world for a year. And it was an amazing way to think about the people first and how we exited from that standpoint. How did you value it? How did you exit him? Like, yeah, it's a great question. So we started with agreement because you had to go back to the shareholders agreement. And we put, um, I think we put a multiple on EBIT that was sort of the same as his fair market value. What did you estimate that to be? Yeah, it's a great point. So at the time, we were probably doing maybe $5 million in sales and maybe a million dollars on the bottom line. And so I think that we, we valued that at somewhere around three times. And then we got really creative on it, right? Which we tried to figure out from his standpoint of benefit, what was like the post-tax amount and pre-tax amount. And then he was trying to figure out travel costs and expenses and all those things for the year. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm not sure how many of these things were CRA regulated from that standpoint. But, um, but then we just actually found a way that we gave him some cash. Then we held a bunch back that could actually more efficiently fund his lifestyle over the next sort of 18 months. And it was super awesome on all parties. Um, so, you know, he probably got the enterprise value of the organization in a net dollar amount that would have been equal to a buyout. But the actual value in pocket for him with the, the way that we actually paid him and over time probably created more value than that from that standpoint, for sure. Got it. Okay. So you guys are cruising. You're at 5 million on top line, million dollars on the bottom line. Eli leaves, but Ryan's still with Yeah, you. Ryan was still there. Yeah. And then, you know, Ryan and I carried on for another four years-ish, three or four years. And, you know, not unlike many service businesses, and I think at a certain point, we started to have a bit of a different vision for the company. Right. And the bit of a different vision, I, I had really a vision of making the company not about any founder, sort of decoupling the brand and the people. And Ryan was super passionate about the work and as a creative director and a designer, and he was very, very talented at it. Um, but I think as we were trying to scale the the like we could agree that we wanted the company to grow, but we didn't have any alignment on how the company should grow. If that made sense. And, and I think this was my first experience as an entrepreneur. And one of the things I'm super passionate about is the fundamental difference between agreement and alignment. And at sometimes I say agreement is the death of alignment um, from that standpoint, because you think that you are more. What do you mean? Right. What do you mean um, by the agreement versus alignment? I don't I don't understand that. Yeah. So a couple of things. And this is a random one off. So bear with me for a second. And, and this is even more relevant to my current situation. What I've realized, and, and maybe specifically service businesses because they're so driven by people, is that agreement typically ends up having one person feel like they're having to be less correct or less right than the other person. And at the same time, what ends up happening is you think you have agreement on like a daily basis. But when you add up all of these little yeses and nos and fines and okays, what you actually realize is that you don't have alignment on the bigger picture. Because somehow in agreement, it becomes personal, me versus you. Uh, you know, John, you need to agree that the number should be this versus that. Versus us getting to alignment on, can we align to where the business should perform? And I know those are really nuanced things, but in businesses that are so people-driven, I've really learned that I fought for agreement for a ship for a ton of my career. Like, well, you got to agree that this is what we need to do, and I'd be passionate about it. And I was actually creating distance between you and I every time I said, hey, like, I need you to agree or you need to agree or we need to agree because it, it kept it super personal. And in businesses that are so people driven, they actually fracture relationships versus trying to really focus on let's find alignment on where we're going. And you or I don't have to feel like we're giving a piece of that agreement up in the process. Really so, smart. So weird. When you, when you thought about alignment, about you had this vision, you agreed that you should grow. So you didn't want it to be a lifestyle business. You, you wanted to grow. Correct. You were at five going, did you have a sense of what, what the North star was? Like how big did you want to get? What, like what was, what was the view? Yeah. Probably like most businesses, you think doubling is the big goal. Right. And so, you know, 10 was the yardstick. And I, I think we had a, we, we had a somewhat clear path that we could probably get it to 20 or 25. And in our business, there's a revenue side and then there's sort of a fee side or a net side. And so the goal was always to get the net side between 10 and 15 and not really worry about 
the the top revenue side because of some pass through costs and that. And so, you know, Ryan and I ended up parting ways. You know, a few years later, um, in, in what I would say is a very you know, we had very different views, but in a very diplomatic, rational way, because he, unlike I did in my first experience, did put the company and the people first because he believed in the people. And so he found a way that it was very, you know, fluid for us to find a way to transition the business from that standpoint. And at that point, we had a pretty very strong management team that was filling in the gaps and the business was growing. And so it was super successful from that standpoint. Um, and that one we valued higher. You know, we valued that one, and I think at around 5x. Um, and we worked really hard to find tax efficiency around that number. And at that point, as an agency or a service, let's talk an agency, but a service business that was primarily Canadian focused, you know, primarily Ontario based people, like we didn't have three or four offices and we didn't have multi international clients, about maybe 25% of our business was international. That was a pretty good multiple at that time. Um, to go into the marketplace and we didn't really go in the marketplace, but to actually pay out. And so we felt very good on both sides of the fence that we valued the business fairly because we put the people first uh, on that side. And did you use the cash from the business, the operating cash to, to pay him out? Or did you have to like reach into your pocket and borrow money? Like how did you yeah, finance it? It ended up being a little bit of both, right? It ended up being a little bit of, I had to pull it from uh, a personal holding company over um, because we just couldn't sustain the cash on that standpoint. And then for some tax efficiency standpoint, he agreed to take some delayed payments. So it was pretty good mutual, you know, I guess a pure seller vendor standpoint, mm -hmm. it, it was a really rational deal on everyone sort of picked their list of things that were super important to them. For him, it was some tax viability. And for us, it was cash flow viability. And in the middle part of the sort of agreement was we wanted the company to be successful longer term. Makes sense. And so you you end up being the sole shareholder to traffic or do you have other investors at the time? Or yeah, no, at that point, um, I was a sole shareholder once we'd done that transition. Um, our CFO, COO at the time, Kelly, uh, actually had become would, was on the path to become a partner through the whole process with us. And so once Ryan exited, it had availed some opportunity for Kathy, Kelly to once again, she sort of had an earned equity model because she'd been there for a while. So Kelly actually ended up owning a percent of the company um, down the road as well. Got it. And then where does it get to? So again, you're at five, but you had a goal to get to somewhere between 10 and 15 net yeah. revenue. How did you do? Yeah, so we built the business up and then around... Um, 2009, going into 2010, I started to think about what was the next big chapter of the business and could we get it to 50 or could we do other things with it? And I would say at the same point, a little bit of my imposter syndrome probably started to kick in, right? Of, well, wait, wait a minute. I built this. Now I'm running it alone. What does the future look like? Have I built the business strong enough? Have I built the business big enough? And both of those entities, good and the imposter syndrome, which, which I don't think was, maybe not bad is the right word for it, but I'm super transparent about my imposter syndrome, right? So, you know, they both led me to ask myself, okay, what does the next five, 10 years look like at that point? And so I went and talked to a bunch of people and I really came to realize sort of four things in, 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 in that moment in time when you reflect going forward. And and the four things in, in no order were, one, I'd had the best management team that I'd ever had. And I'd realized in the business that we were in, in the service business, those management team members were going to start to recycle about every two years because they needed to get on to different opportunities for them to continue to grow. And I didn't want that to be the case. A, because I didn't want to see them go on to something else, not because I didn't want to hold them back, but they'd worked so hard for us that I thought we could come up with a different solution. And number two, I didn't want to be a sole owner having to recycle and recruit management teams every two to three years and then figure out what that meant for our business and our brand. So that was sort of pillar number one. The second pillar was I started to really sort of ask myself about the business I was in, did I want to do it for the rest of my life? And, you know, I got a lot of perspective of don't be an old person in a young person's game. <laughs> you know, people would say to me, hey, you know, you know, at a certain point when your level of frustration in the business you run 
even comes close to your level of passion in the business you run. And I was getting close. I wasn't totally there, right? But I was getting to the point where my passion for selling, you know, a, a ball of brown cola that had a red label versus a blue label, it wasn't, it, it wasn't firing me up anymore. Um, and then, you know, there were sort of really two other pieces on a personal front. One was somebody gave me amazing perspective, which was, hey, look, at the time my kids with John were probably six and eight-ish. Okay. And they said, hey, look, if I could do it all over again, I would sell my business 50% sooner for 25% less money. So I could spend that chapter of time with more freedom with my kids to build that relationship. Because when they're 16, 17, 18, 20, you can't build that relationship as you can when they're that age. And so that really, really impacted me, right? And, and I sort of say this to people all the time, which is, it's literally that math, right? Sell 50% sooner for 25% more if you want that window of time with your kids. And so that really, really, really stuck with me. And then the other one based on, you know, I, I, I really came from a background where my family had nothing. This, this ability to say, hey, should you take chips off the table? Should you allow your kids to go to any school you want? I just talked to enough people who said, hey, I hung on too long. I didn't do it the right way. And so we decided, Beth and I, that we try and find a way to either de-risk de the company, sell the company, or go through some sort of process to try and accomplish all four of those things. And so we did that. I was in a process. Um, we actually had not used a broker or intermediary. In hindsight, I probably would have. I can get into that as much as I can. Mark, where um, are you roughly in terms of revenue, net revenue at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. So gross revenue is probably just shy of 20 million uh, fees or net revenue is probably like 12 million. Okay. And bottom line was somewhere, you know, run rate was probably two, but you know, there's a bunch of normalizations in there that is, we all know can push this up or down and yeah. of time on that. And so we went through a process of the business and I ended up getting a call from someone who took a job for Onyx, with an Onyx private equity firm who I'd known for years. And he called me and said, hey, look, don't sell the business yet. I have an opportunity for us to do something a little bit differently. And I have the opportunity for not only because I talked to him about those four things and he said, Hey, I have an opportunity for not only you to get more excited about work again, but your team to get more excited again. And I think that I can help the business that you're in become part of a global organization where you guys can go run some global stuff. And that had a lot of appeal to me versus us selling into one of the holding companies or us trying to be a smaller part of a bigger cog. And so we ended up doing a transaction where we sold the business and I sold hundred percent of the business. Um, which I can give you as many details as I can about it, but I sold 100% of the business in 2015. And it was to uh, an Onyx company that wanted to add our services on top of their services. Um, and we sold the business. The structure of the deal was pretty basic. Uh, I didn't want an earnout based on the fact of how I would have been, a, like we just wouldn't have been able to control our own revenue because I also believed that integrating our services in was actually the better solution. So the trackability of earnouts would have been really complicated. And so we basically agreed to a three-year term payout. And the really only trigger on the earnout was that I was still an employee in the business from that standpoint. And so that was super fair deal, rational on all sides of that deal. Uh, the deal for us, from a breakdown, because I know this is important to founders and this transparency, I think helps. The deal was about 60% upfront in the transaction. Um, then the last payment was around 25%. And then the middle was broken up um, as sort of two smaller bridge payments. And we had to roll some of that equity back into the um, bigger Onyx entity. And so we rolled um, about 8% of the deal back in from that standpoint. Um, you're going to ask me the multiple. So the multiple is a little bit tricky. 
And the really what is important the interview? I'll just listen. <laughs> yeah, well, look, these well, are the important right. things, right? It, it, look, I, I feel like as much transparency I can give you. So yeah, it, yeah. it gets a little bit complicated, but the multiple, you know, should have been probably ended up being in the five to six range. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm saying it's a little bit complicated is because what ended up happening on the back end was Onyx ended up exiting that business. Um in sort of early 2020, I'd worked till about mid 2019 with the business, which was an amazing experience, by the way. We got to open up international businesses and I was running Europe and an amazing learning. And then I sort of went on the private equity buying side for them of understanding how to go acquire service businesses. Hmm. But they ended up exiting that in a bunch of other strategic moves to sort of de-risk some of the, the core investments. And they ended up selling it to a uh, my term is not going to be fair or rational to them, but more of a, a deep discounting turnaround private equity shop. And so our core 8% went from call it $100 a share to $4 a share. So we literally lost 96% in value of that, that money that we flipped into the map, into the big greater business Oh wow! Um, on that standpoint. So you know, if I'm very honest, I've actually never actually did the net net multiple <laughs> because um, I think it was an interesting learning about that role and the risk around that role and how to position that role from that standpoint. Interesting. A lot of our uh, listeners will be asked to roll equity. Uh, absolutely. It's it's very common, obviously, in a private equity deal. So just to be clear, you rolled 8% into Onyx shares, Onyx being the the, the giant holding company or 8% into a, a division, if you will, of Onyx. It sounds yeah, like- no, great. 8% into a division. So Onyx okay. had a platform and I rolled 8% of our investment into the um, platform investment for Onyx. Okay. And, 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 the, and you ended up getting f- $0.04 cents on the dollar effectively for those shares. Yeah, basically, yeah, we lost about 96% in value of that role. Okay. Yeah. And, and obviously not a great outcome, but- what did you learn from, would you do anything differently about it? If you yeah, were yeah equity? multiple things differently. So I think, first of all, I don't think rolling equity is a bad thing. I actually think it is an amazing alignment thing. Um, and so even though mine didn't work out swimmingly well, I actually don't think it's a bad mechanism at all. I think the key to it is from my learnings, and this is not uh, advice, my learnings would have been, I don't think I understood the transparency and understanding how that role in equity was managed, valued, and um, accessible. I think I was really excited about the deal, really believed in the deal, really believed in the opportunity, you know, probably got Hollywooded a little bit by the name of the private equity firm. Right, what did Hollywood it mean? I love yeah, it. Hollywood, like stars and lights, right? I was yeah, probably yeah. like, look, this isn't this isn't some, and, and I think by the way, that's a real factor in some of these deal structures is that you get, you know, I, I call it Hollywood because you you almost get excited about the movie and how it's all going to work out, but you don't realize maybe they haven't done their due diligence, and maybe it isn't. You, you do need to dig two or three levels deeper, and I wish I would have done all of those things, but I didn't because it was honest, very honest. And they didn't treat me unfairly. I want to be clear on that. I just didn't do that level of due diligence. That would be my first one is to make sure that you really understand the valuation, how it's tracked, the accessibility of it, and what really impacts it, right? So in our case, what impacted it was debt load and interest rates went up and and a bunch of stuff that honestly, John, I would have never thought through when I did the deal. I would have never thought through that their debt load and interest payments ballooning and due dates could have affected that or not at all. And I think that that was super naive. So I would say, you know, if you do roll in an entity that has multi-factors affecting the earnout, I would do significant due diligence and probably hire someone to understand what the impacts of those are if, they, if the role was enough or impactful enough for you. That was part A. Yeah. That's fascinating because, of course, most of these private equity deals, the private equity acquirer is using some debt to buy the business and that debt needs to get repaid by the company. And when interest rates go from where three to 8% or wherever, it's effectively doubling that. In other words, lowering their, their, their cash flow at the very least. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't think through when 
payments were coming due and when terms were coming due and when loans were coming due. And, you know, I probably didn't do enough of an analysis around how the financial statements would be impacted. And so if you looked at the EBITDA numbers and multiples, and I was just naive and I was excited. And as I said, yeah, I got Hollywood. And, and by the way, nobody Hollywood me. I did it to myself, right? So, you know, that would probably been my first one. And then I think my second piece was that I didn't really probably do enough personal strategy and planning around how the cash allocations of some of those payments would or wouldn't impact my personal situation. Um, because once again, I was excited about the deal and, and the deal would, you know, provided my family more liquidity than I probably thought I would have had at that age, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was a little bit naive on the deal structure and I was a little bit naive on understanding the key levers to the deal structure to the equity role. How did, uh, how did it work with being an employee? So you mentioned it wasn't an earn out, but it was a structured payment, which was contingent on you staying as an employee. Yeah. Did Onyx have the rights to effectively fire you and, 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 and eliminate the need to pay that extra 25% on the very back end? Yeah, no, it was actually pretty fair and reasonable. I just couldn't quit. Okay. I couldn't quit and I couldn't basically go on strike. Like, in, in essence, right? Like you can, you can say I could have, like I had to follow the CEO's leadership and all that. But basically as a founder, it was fairly reasonable. I couldn't okay. go on strike. In other words, I had to do my job. Um, they couldn't ask me to do something that was super unreasonable and I just couldn't quit. And if they fired me, then that was their choice. And then everything would have got accelerated from a payment standpoint. So I think that that part of the deal was actually laid out very well in a service business where, you know, you don't want a pure play earnout because mine wasn't really an earnout. Mine was a reinvestment, right? Like mine wasn't based on a multiple that we had to get to. I literally took a check and invested it back in with Onyx's same cash. Uh, in a platform company. And if they did well, I would have done well. They unfortunately didn't do very well and therefore I didn't do very well. But um, so as a service-based company, as a founder that is really hesitant on a pure play earnout, I think it was very rational how everyone got to this, this ability to balance it out. Makes perfect sense. And now you're using all of this learning uh, that you've learned you know, through the school of hard knocks and you're taking it and and acquiring companies. Walk me through how you got from cashed out founder to now private equity investor, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because even when you people say, hey, are, are you a private equity investor? I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm not a private equity investor. That's okay. not how I work, right? But, but I guess we use private equity strategies in some sense, right? We're private capital. We invest private capital in businesses that we don't own today. And we either you know, invest or partner or acquire those businesses. So yeah, I think it's a combination of a bunch of stuff. It's funny, I said to someone the other day, I feel like somehow the other chapters of my life are leading me into this chapter of my life. Um, and I think it comes back to, I had a pretty blue collar dad who, you know, went through very ups and downs as an entrepreneur. Um, and I would say some very unsuccessful and had some very strong hardships. And so I've always sort of had this passion for entrepreneurs that do a bunch of hard work and understand it from that standpoint. I think the part about the business that I owned was helping companies grow. Like, and, and I think that people paid us to help their companies grow, whether they were a brand or whether it was a business or our product. You know, we really got paid, as I told you before, to help things sell and help things grow. And so I got super fanatical about that. And then so what ended up happening was once I exited the business, I started asking people, what should I do when I grow up in life? Um, and as I got into what should I grow up in life? Multiple people said to me, hey, look, um, I think you should consider buying businesses. You learned a little bit in Onyx how to acquire them and sort of the modeling and stuff. But I think you should look at service businesses that are somewhat boring or blue collar. And, you know, accountants would tell me that and my lawyer would tell me that. And you go talk to people and they'd be like, well, there's this tsunami in the, in the economy that doesn't really have a solution. And, and so I was like, oh, that sounds good. And then I was super naive, right? I, I went out and I'm like, okay, this I'm going to go acquire businesses. I did it for Onyx. I had their paycheck. And, you know, honestly, for two years, I, I now insert COVID, so not super easy, but I really tried to understand what point of view I had on it all. And that's why when you say to me, hey, are you private equity? I'm like, well, sort of, 
but I have some agreements and alignments and some disagreements with some of the fundamentals in this part of the market. And so what I really got excited about was focusing on service-driven businesses because I understood them and businesses where founders really wanted to focus on the value creation side. And, and what I mean by that was typically we partner with people that either really care about legacy. Typically, the businesses are, are in some phase of stuck. Either, you know, they want to transform them, but they're not sure how, and they still have a life cycle left. Or they want to transition and don't really have an eloquent way to transition or exit that business while caring about the people, caring about the communities they work in, caring about their customers. And then we realize that there's sort of another subset of that business, which are businesses that are about under $2 million in EBITDA or earnings or free cash, how you look at it. And so we went out to the marketplace, really tried to say, I couldn't get involved in something unless I understood the business model and I could partner with the subject matter expert. And that's really what we started doing. And, and we do it um, through a couple different ways. We started in the safety service businesses because we found some great entrepreneurs that are the subject matter experts and fit into those two buckets. Um, typically, we're not the solution if a founder wants to take the money and go on permanent leave of absence a week later. That's just not the model we're in. There's lots of great partners out there for that type of model. And then typically, we work off something that we call a bit of a clustering strategy, which we try and find a great entrepreneur who's in a great business that is, fits in that transition or transformation phase. Um, and then we say, that's awesome. We love you. We love your business. If you could expand your business or buy a competitor or go build a service within your business, what would they be? And, and we sort of call that, we focus on the value creation side of service businesses versus the value capture. I'm, I'm, I've watched it. I'm a bit unconvinced in this part of the service business. There's a lot of value capture to be had. There's some efficiencies in UK, but our model is really around alignment, empowerment, culture, value creation, then execution. And so when we find those like-minded founders, typically we try and cluster businesses together around one founder who then can be the advocate for us with other founders. So we typically try and do sort of multiple transactions within a, a fairly fixed period of time. I always like to say we like to do them at once. It never works that way with deal structure. And you're looking but, for service companies uh, that are sort of in blue collar. Uh, your first one is in safety. Yeah, we primarily focus on infrastructure services. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is we just believe there's a lot of tailwind behind it. What is infrastructure service? What yeah, that's great. It's true. Typically, you know, it's, it has anything to do with where I joke and say a human being and an innate object are trying to produce something, right? So it typically is construction, industrial, uh, institutional. Typically, that's where we're into services. And then we also, once again, have the lens of a certain type of founder. Then we have the lens of transition and transformation. And then we have a vision of getting alignments around the, the Typically, the founder has a good vision of what the value creation could be, and they just hadn't done it from that standpoint. And and so, um, who, who's the we in this business? Or is this your capital? Or have you got partners? What's the yeah? No, it's 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 fair. It's my capital um, with two other entrepreneurs who really are in the more infrastructure business. Okay, and have nothing to do with services. And for years, have been saying they didn't understand my service side, and I always loved their infrastructure side around real estate um, from that standpoint. And so we sort of have partnered to go take a, a view to it. And then I guess the last piece of our view is partially because of my experience in selling the business and going through it and partially because of their view around almost like the permanency of assets in that space. Um, we do have a bit of a view of persistent or permanent capital is kind of the way that I look at it. In other words, you know, because of the way we structure the capital, we don't look to flip businesses. We don't need to return to investors tomorrow. And so we do have a long-term view of running the businesses. Um, people ask me, well, are you going to run them the exact same way the founder ran them before? Well, no, not necessarily. But we're going to have the same view of we're going to run it like it will exist forever. And what would a typical deal structure be like if I, if, if I was considering selling my my business to you, what would the typical deal structure be? Great question. Yeah, I think if you go back to those two buckets that we found are founders that are, are typically really good partners for us. So one is sort of in that I want to transition my business. I have an exit. It's not tomorrow. 
I want to make sure legacy community and people are super taken care of. Typically, those deal structures are we would acquire an equal to majority stake in the business day one. Typically, the founders and or their management teams would take a 20 to 30% stake in the business on a go forward basis. And or we would acquire up to whatever the founder wants to keep as an equity role over time. And that time period could be three to five years. And so the founder gets the upside of each step of the ladder, almost as we call it, as we're building the business together. And so that would typically be deal structure number one. And, you know, there's obviously some nuance in there, but, you know, I don't like using the term founder friendly because I don't think anyone understands what that means. But what I would say is the structure of the deal is very similar where we own, you know, a sort of equal or majority stake in the business. There is definitely a commitment by the founder and or the management team to own a partner and really be a partner with us. And then, but the founder has a predictable way to understand how they're going to de-risk or, or de-leverage the asset or their business over time. And what would you say to a founder who's just heard your story about the 8% going to four cents of the dollar and said, I'm not rolling any equity. I, I don't want my, I don't want my, you know, chunk to go to four cents of the dollar. How do you respond to that if that's their sort of stance? Yeah, well, I think there's two pieces to it. One is I think we've worked really hard to solve the problems that I didn't solve for myself. So around transparency, under understanding how that equity works, understanding when you have access to that equity, understanding sort of what the gates are that you can make decisions on. Hey, you know, I'd like to take some off the table. I'd like to keep some rolling. Um, so I think what I would say to founders are it still may not be perfect for you, but you're getting the benefit of all my mistakes um, in a very transparent model that we try and go forward with from that standpoint. And then. I think the second model we have is founders that have a very sort of transformational view on the business, where at that point, we definitely want to share the upside with all the founders. And so typically those deal structures would be us requiring 50% or a little bit more than 50%. Those founders are really partners in driving the business. Typically, we build a schedule to acquire the business. So it's almost like at a gate where we could acquire more at this point. We have a conversation about it or they can roll. And those two things are not all symbiotically related. In other words, you could take some equity off the table at one phase and then not at another phase and, and, and from that standpoint. And, and so they're not really complicated if I'm not describing it well. They're actually very simple deals because one of the things that I learned in being on the other side of it was there's a lot of ways to make something that should be very user-friendly complicated. Um, and we work really hard to not do that. And what's, and I'm going to, you're not, fluffing your feathers here. So, so I'm going to, because what's cool is unlike a bean counter investing in your business or, you know, a money guy or gal investing in your business is like, you know, we now own 51% and we're going to gut your business. We're going to get rid of your employees because we don't really understand a service business. You're, you're getting you who a understand service businesses and delicate alchemy that are the people of those businesses and B you're like a marketing guy, one of Canada's best. And so, you know, help Microsoft and Pepsi and all, all these amazing brands. And so like, if I'm on the other side of the table, I'm like, I could go with the bean counter. I could go with Mark. Like the Mark deal sounds pretty good to me right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, you know, thank you. First of all, I think that that is what we try and say to people are that, there, you know, there's not necessarily a bad choice in selling your business. I think you've got to find the fit for you. And, and the reason we called the company and capital, by the way, is exactly what you just described, which was we said, hey, we're going to be super transparent. I'm not even convinced I like the name, but we just wanted to be so transparent in the marketplace because it is hard and it is confusing as a founder and it is probably the biggest decision of your life. And so what we wanted to do was be so transparent with people that said, hey, look, if we can align to all those things you just said, which is we know how to bring value to your business. I've been in your shoes. I've run a service business. I don't have interest in businesses that aren't service businesses. And we really can act as a partner in that. And then we can give you the capital you need. Then we're probably the right partner for you. If we're stuck on capital first structures and engineering that, I'm probably not the right guy for you. Honestly, I'm not that smart as I joke. Um, I'm way better at understanding how to focus on the value creation and the culture and all those things. So let's talk about the biggest mistakes founders make. So you've met a lot of founders, uh, 
both peers of yours and now you know on the on the acquisition side what do you think the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make uh when it comes to this exit conversation is yeah so you know once again I, i'm not sure i'll ever give advice but i can give some shared learnings of things i witness how's sure. that and maybe there's sort of three or four so the one i would say is the multiple is probably the thing that I think people make the most amount of mistakes around. Because the deals, a lot of deal structures seem to be caught up on this multiple, right? And, and I would argue with you, the multiple is a directional element. The actual deal structure is way more important for people on either side. Like if it's a pure money investment deal structure, there's a tax implication at a certain point, and there's understanding how to get those payments that are more efficient. And I see a lot of mistakes around people just driving and trying to focus and refocus conversations around the multiple versus what's the actual value of the deal, total net to the founder. And if the founder cares more about cash, in other words, they care about the community and they care about the people and they care about the longevity of the business, then all those parts need to be part of a deal structure. And so I think that for multiple reasons that I don't think are bad reasons, we get caught up on this as the common nomenclature of deals is multiples. And I think it should be part of it and it should be directional, but it should not be your entire focus. So that would be sort of my first piece. Okay. You know, the second piece I would say is understand clearly from all of your partners, whether it be your brokers, your advisors, all of the people that support. And I call really the community of founders, because when you enter into a sale process, as you would know, the community is super important. Whoever you choose to put in your community, don't do it alone. One of my other mistakes um, is that really understand and be able to describe what type of founder selling you are. So are you the type of founder who in our buckets would either be a transformative one? I have five years left. I have these goals. I want a partner. Are you a transitionary one who says, no, no, I, I have a clear exit, but I want to do it on my terms, my hands on the wheel. Or, or you know, are you a, what I would say, a controlled exit partner who I have a very clear path for an exit. and it's not that I'm dump and running because I haven't really met many dump and run founders, honestly. Um, but I've oversimplified the buckets. But I think those three buckets are very good directionally for you to talk to your community around to understand before you start seeking out a deal. So transformational meaning, I, I see the next big uh, S curve in our growth, but I need some extra capital. I want to take a little bit of chips off the table to get there. So that's a trans. I've got five years left. And I yeah, and I want partners change. to do it with. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Intellectual partner or someone who can be a partner in the true sense of the word. The second one is I want to transition out, but I want to do it with my hand on the wheel. I don't want to, like, I want to, I want it to be gradual. Correct. And I think that's a great term for it. It's really transitionary, which is, you know, there's a transition. It's not um, a controlled exit, which is I have a very specific time frame to I want to be out of the business. Right. And they work with you to figure out what that transitionary period of time is. And typically... The founder has a lot of influence on it, which I'd give you examples of, but that would be, that would be sort of my second big learning is don't let the community sway you in the middle of the process. What, what, what one of those three you should be focusing on, have a good sense going into it with your community, which one of those you are. Uh, that's a really interesting point because, uh, you know, certain people have different incentives, right? Your lawyer may be like, hey, pump the brakes here. Let's think this through. Your broker may be, hey, let's get a deal done. And, and there may be, the wealth advisor may be saying, hey, let's, I, you know, I want to invest the money. And so let's get as much cash up front. Like there could be all sorts of motivations that aren't necessarily in total alignment with what you want as the founder. Am I getting, am I? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and look, I think that that isn't, done out of negativity. I think it, no, it I happens at yeah. your point, right? Like it just happens, right? And then you get in and then, and, and in the marketplace that we're in, you could get big swings, right? Like you could be selling a business that someone thinks the enterprise value of it is 4 million and someone prices it at 5.5. Five. Like that's crazy, the difference in those two prices, right? And so stuff happens in that process when you're sort of in this, mid sort of, I would call small to micro cap space that we, we sort of play in. And so that's when I think it's really important to understand one and two. One is deal structure, not multiple. And the second one is, you know, understanding what type of founder and seller are you or what are the key sort of structures to put around it. 
Yeah, the multiple one is is really interesting. I remember a, a mentor of mine. I mean, this goes back uh, more than a decade. So forgive the old old uh, example, but he used to say, "You know, multiple of what? Multiple of three years historical, multiple right. of weighted average, multiple of last year's, multiple of future, multiple of this year's trailing twelve months adjusted." I mean, there's like there's a lot of different ways you can skin the cat, and so it can be a very subjective number that varies wildly based on how you interpret the question about multiple. So it's a really good reminder for my listeners for sure. Yeah. And then I think the last one for me is I don't think a lot of the processes actually provide the founder with enough ability to build relationship. Okay. Um, tell me more. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Yeah. So we, we, we have done partnerships where some have come through a broker network in the community that we've done and, and some have come either in our clustering strategy so founders would bring them and some would be to use the term self-sourced um in other words, we have a team of people that call people if they're interested from that standpoint um and especially in founders that fall into our key two buckets right transformative or transitionary you need a lot of relationships like a lot of hours just spending you and I. I, I joke and call it the Boston pizza boardroom, right? Where, you know, we spend hours in the Boston pizza boardroom because I just don't think founders feel like they can ask for enough of that time to really get to understand them. Like they should know I have two kids and they should understand maybe what kind of father I am. And, and I know this sounds really dumb, right? But people don't spend enough time on this, in my opinion, especially in a service business. Because if you go back to people are really all it's about how I treat you and how I treat my kids and how I treat my ex-employees, I think is really, really, really important. And I think in some of the processes right now, that is probably the factor that gets undervalued the most. And I've seen founders feel like they can't even ask for that because the process is laid out in such a structured way at certain times. And, and I think that if we can think about the next... I don't know, John, pick a time, five or 10 years that, and pick a report, somewhere between 65 and 72% of these businesses need to transition or transform or controlled exit in the next 10 years. I'd love to see the process have as much EQ as IQ in the process going hmm. forward. Because I think we'll just get better deals and I think our economy will be in a better place. That's a bit of a passionate one about me, but that would be the third one for sure. Is I don't think, I think we undervalue the relational side of transacting these service-driven businesses um, in our economy right now. And but you can understand from an entrepreneur's perspective why, I mean, this could be their one shot at, you know, the big nut, right? Like this could be uh, like, uh, and you can understand why founders, as you've been one yourself and you lived it, why they focus on like, what's the number? Because this, this is totally. my life's work. Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't know... I am optimistic that the transitionary economic situation we're in right now, even though on a multiple <laughs> or even, you know, actually net enterprise value, the values may be less than they were two years ago, right? Based on everything you said, right? Money was free. Tons of private equity money was around. People were doing deals that I'm not sure get done in this exact environment right now. You know, I think that, if, if I'm optimistic that said, maybe this environment has pumped the brakes a little bit, I actually think it'll be healthier for the business's longer term. And that doesn't mean that I want any entrepreneur to get less money. I want entrepreneurs to get great money. But I just think the pumping of the brakes will potentially create more creative deals for both the community, the founders, and the economy going forward. And these businesses still running, despite any optimism. Let's assume I'm not a Wharton finance grad. and. Either one of us, by the way. What's that? Either one of us. I'm a kinesiology <laughs> grad, but yes. <laughs> so, you know, let's try to keep this in, in layman's terms. But, you know, I've, I've heard that private equity companies, when they buy a company, a business, and I realize that's not how you characterize yourself, but, but work with me here. They use a little bit of debt or in some cases, a lot of debt in the case of Onyx to, to, to improve their return on investment. And I understand as a founder that in the event that I'm going to sell to a private equity group and there's some debt that's going to be applied to my business, I'm going to have to pay that debt off using the cash in my, my former business. And, and that's going to put pressure on, on me to continue to perform and maybe gives us less wiggle room. 
How would you coach me as a founder to evaluate how much debt the private equity company intends to use? Like, how do I figure out whether they're going to use, you know, two turns of EBITDA debt or five turns? Like, how do I figure that out before I agree to the transaction? Yeah, interesting. My answer to you is super simple, but not easy. I would ask, right? And so we, you know, to your point, because I've been a founder and I got caught up in the Hollywood, you know, we don't Hollywood anything about it. As a brand, we're not Hollywood, but you get what I mean, right? So we clearly explain to people how much debt we believe we can and may put on the business. Typically, we, we are extremely low. Like in our, net, in our net enterprise today, we probably have less than one ratio of like one, well, we do have one. We probably have less than one percent, like one turn of debt on on our total enterprise value because we just believe it's the wrong thing to do right now. So, um, so to be clear, it, it so for my listeners, let's say you have a company with a million dollars in revenue, a hundred thousand dollars in in profit. You're yes. saying that you you would have a no more than we have less than a hundred thousand dollars debt on that business. Yeah. yeah, and and for exactly all the reasons you say, right, is that you know cash flow is king, and you know we're unsure of the debt market, and that doesn't mean we won't put debt on businesses. And I think at times, coming from a non Wharton, as you use the example, or pure private equity background, I have learned that the debt, if it's the right structure, is actually. A very positive thing because you get partners that have experience like RBC who can actually add value to the overall business creation by bringing them on as partners. And so I don't think debt should be thought of as a negative thing. I think to your point, high debt leverage on a service business that relies on free cash flow, I think the founder really should understand how that works. And once again, if they're not being explained that clear in the transactionary structure or their community, there are absolutely people that can help you understand that from that standpoint, right? I want to briefly ask you, and then I'll, I'll let you go because I know we've spent a lot no, of time no, here. Keep on. Uh, put options. So we've had two stories, one very good, one very bad, uh, both involved uh, private equity. One, the good one was the founder was in a position of strength and negotiated some put options. And for my listeners, that means that they had the, the ability to to effectively sell the remaining shares that they rolled at a predetermined valuation. And so he kind of capped his downside, but also had a bit up like upside. So that's that's a kind of the best of both worlds. But he had a lot of leverage because he had a very attractive business. Other story uh, was the opposite. So sold 51%, so lost control, had a, a, a big chunk of, uh, of, of his business, um, and that went to zero. And, and had no option to get out and had no control to, to do. So it was kind of both ends of the spectrum. So what coaching would you give a founder around negotiating put options? Is that something you would ever entertain as a buyer? And if so, like under what conditions? Yeah, it's interesting because I would say to you, we have that same intent in some of our structures, right? We probably aren't as lateral or literal to call them put options, but like we have the ability to say, Hey, look, if you would like here, you know, we'd almost call them stairs in the process, right? Which is at this point, if you'd like, we will buy this amount of equity for a predetermined price. And what we typically would do is explain to people at the sale price why we would want to buy or why they would want to sell or why we'd want them to hold or keep. And we would explain it to them in actually modeling of if the business does this, then this is what that would be worth. And here's why you want to do one thing or why you'd want to do another. And so... You know, once again, my perspective of founder would also go back to if you really understand which one of those three buckets, and I've oversimplified those three buckets, I think then to your point around put options, you would you would have a different lens on why you would do it or why you wouldn't. That would be the first piece. And then the second piece would be on my shared experience, which was, you know, you really need to not be Hollywood on how those put options actually will come to life and get as granular as you possibly can around what drives the, to your point, those two sides of that coin on those put options. And if I got really comfortable with them and I got comfortable with the partners were focused on driving the value of the business and I understood that I at least had some sort of, I'm not sure control would be the word or you sold 51%, but some sort of impact on those put options, I think they could be a great alignment tool if they fit to why you're selling and you don't feel like you're a passenger on the ship of put options. 
That's when I think put options get a bit scary is that when the founder suddenly feels like they're a passenger in their own company and they have these put options, or I would put very transactional earnouts in the same bucket, right? Which is, I thought I understood how it worked. All the mechanisms of earnouts that can change that number demonstrably, I actually didn't have any visibility or control over. I, I think at times it, it's a very unfortunate situation that founders can get themselves into and a hard one to get out of. It's really hard to suddenly renegotiate that stuff halfway through and say, whoa, that's not what we thought the intent was. Um, you know, not impossible if you have good partners, but I think you've witnessed probably more than mine. There is the downside of some of those for sure. Yeah, a hundred percent. When you talk about uh, a put option that you might put in place, a structure with, with a company that you buy, and you mentioned like when we reach this point, is that point a moment in time or a revenue threshold or a profitability threshold? Well, for us, we have a little bit of a benefit. And so you know, here's a live example. I obviously can't give you the names, but there's a business who is definitely in the transformative phase, right? Transformative phase of, hey, I think I probably got five years left. I want to do all these things with the business. I know I can't do it all alone. I'm stuck in the day-to-day. -day. I'm really excited what you guys are doing. I see the synergies between your core business that you're running and my business. That's amazing. I also have a goal of trying to get this much value out of the business for me over that time. And I know my business isn't worth that at this point in time. And so we actually spend a lot of time saying, okay, so if these things happen and you lay out what we thought we would do, here's probably where we think we can get to on the high side. Here's where we think we can get to on the low side. And so let's pick a median realistic number and start to plot it out over your five years to say at this point, if these things happen with modest growth, plus the plan that we have in place, you'd be here. Is that where you want to be or do you want to be here? And so I think that us spending a lot of time helping founders really understand how the business can grow or not grow with realistic expectations. And, and that's where probably I'm focused on the value creation side. And I put it in a language that I would have understood when I sold my business and I didn't. I think that we actually build a high level of trust. And I think we give founders the ability to feel like they can really have almost a bespoke option in a structure that, you know, as you know, John, there's, there's only so many ways we can make something bespoke, but if you can, if you can make it as bespoke as possible within the mechanisms of not hurting the business or jeopardizing the founder, I think that's actually the way to go. So I think for that point, transparency is the first piece. I think the second piece is clarity and alignment on how you see the business growing and how long they want to be in it. But it also probably starts to understanding where on that, those three founders sort of buckets you fit into and why this transaction works for you or doesn't. Well said. And my last question relates to more of a personal uh, question. And I want to go back to six and eight years old kids, Beth, <laughs> kind of covering for you as you're... <laughs> As you left the the bar and 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 I I just wonder, you know, when you reflect on the father and the spouse that you've been, um, you know, I, I'm assuming that you made the right decision that you're glad that you sold maybe for less than you could have, if you'd hung on, you, I, I can't remember what the, the, the equation was. It was like 50% sooner, 25%, you know, a lot of water under the bridge. Your kids are older now. You spent like, what are your reflections on that, on that piece of advice now, years later? Yeah, I, I think, I think for me, it was pretty fundamental. Right. And I'm super glad I did it. I'm super glad I did it. And I'm super glad I did it because I also ended up being very fortunate or unfortunate that we ended up, you know, the last sort of middle last part of 2019 would be exactly as you think most founders did, which is I was still getting paid. I had a bit of a transitionary period. I was out of the business. We were traveling everywhere. It was phenomenal. It's exactly how you would think of retirement. And then, you know, basically the world shut down. And so not only did I not have an Optco at the time, I got the bonus of double downing on that strategy that I had of actually spending time with my kids. And I think if you were to ask my kids, which would be an interesting interview, I think they would say that 
you know, that time would be more invaluable than them taking another vacation or doing something else from that standpoint based on our relationship. I've also realized in hindsight how important that is for me. And I would say I don't think, you know, it's a pretty unique thing that you're able to talk to your listeners about that side of transacting a business. Because most people don't, right? Which is, hold on a sec. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What if you could get this time with your kids? How much valuable would that be? That doesn't mean you need to stop being an entrepreneur. Um, because I did sort of stop being an entrepreneur for two years and it was terrible, just as a sidebar. I was terrible at not being passionate about something. And the life lesson in that was, it's important for my kids to see me passionate doing this again. So this, me doing it forever, I don't think was the right solution. I think me doing it for that time and putting time in, I think it was invaluable. And if you would have told me, hey, I've could have got, you know, multiples on hundreds of thousands or maybe a millions, I'm not sure I would have done it. I think I would have taken the time every time. And I think that as founders, it's important to understand what are those other parts that are super important to you and why now versus why five years or whatever. Um, because, you know, the other piece of that is, I think, this is sort of related, which is from a, from a founder standpoint, I think it's really hard about selling your business and what value to sell it at. And did I sell this value or that value? And did I undersell it? Did I oversell it? And it's almost like as founders, we compare our worst day to somebody's best day, right? Like, in, in, and that doesn't mean we didn't have a best day. And, and the magic that I love about what you do is you tell both sides of the story. You've told some people that they thought they probably had their best day and ended up with their worst day. And I think for me, the balance in between those things is there's got to be a reason you want to transact your business more than money. At least that's my perspective. And if that goes back to figuring out what sort of founder you are, because I think if there is, no matter what the end value, you'll be happy. Right. If it's up a little bit or down a little bit, I think you'll just be happier because all of the variables aren't the multiple or the final amount. And of all the partners and founders and entrepreneurs that I've worked with, I think that everyone who's had that some sort of balance between, yes, I, I want the highest value I can get for my business, but I won't take it at all costs. I think that the more you can get comfortable with that and talk about it. And this is where I think the community is super important, right? Which is if our community around helping founders transact, because founders are great at building businesses. That doesn't mean we're all great at selling businesses. This is why stuff like this podcast and other resources and the partners who are part of your partnerships are super important. I would love our community to just start talking about the whole entrepreneur, not just the transaction for the founder. Because I think you'll just get better transactions, happier people. And I actually think the economy that's left post these founders which scares me a little bit because they've been so good for so long. I think it'll be healthier as well. Mark, I'm so grateful uh, for you taking the time. I'm so glad we ran into each other on the bike path. I think that is uh, that serendipity. I, uh, I'm just super grateful. Where can people reach out if they wanted to say hi on social media? I know you're a LinkedIn guy. Is that the best place for folks? Yeah, LinkedIn's work? probably the best uh, from that standpoint. The business, once again, that the capital company that we, we partner with is literally called AND, A-N-D, capital.ca, proud Canadian, um, from that standpoint. And so, that, you know, one of those two places are probably the best place to get a hold of us. And, you know, once again, I think for us, we love talking to founders because if a little bit of our experience can help them, that doesn't mean they have to want to transact today. Just reach out to us and we either will help them give them a perspective or refer them to someone or refer them back to a great podcast uh, like yourself to try and learn. So, you know, and on that side, I think that we are trying to be part of the community, even though we are, I guess, at the end of the day, we're investors and partners. We also want to be on the community side because I think that that's kind of goes back to that balance you just asked me, right? Is if we can be both sides of the community, then I think we'll help everyone create more value. A hundred percent agree. So the website is andcapital.ca. Yeah. And Mark Ferrier, we will put Mark's LinkedIn profile in the show notes at builttocell.com. Mark, thanks for doing this. And there you have it for part two of today's episode with Mark Ferrier. Again, if you hadn't had the chance to listen to the first part of this interview, I'd highly encourage you to head over to builttocell.com 
where there you'll be able to find part one with Mark Ferrier. If you enjoyed today's podcast and parts one and two, I would encourage you to share this podcast out with a friend or colleague you feel like would truly enjoy listening to today's episode. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, I'm sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to watch this full interview, you can head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full version of today's video podcast. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can nominate them by heading over to builttocell.com slash nominate. There you have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Again, for show notes, including everything referenced in today's episode and the more technical terms used, be sure to head over to our episode page, which you can find at builttocell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 